Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover with yours truly, Jarrell Mason, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers. Why are they here to be celebrated? With me right now, I have a cultural critic, music writer based in the Empire State, New York City. She released in 2020 a book about the history of boy bands, Larger Than Life, a history of boy bands from NKOTB to BTS. And we know for sure she got the right stuff and she wants it that way. Ladies and gentlemen, let's give a big round of applause and thank you for coming on to the podcast, Miss Maria Sherman. Maria, thank you for coming on. Oh my gosh, can you be my hype person forever? I feel like I need to wake up to that. That was amazing. Thank you so much. Oh, sure. I could definitely put down your voicemail for you for a small fee because in the hey. at Joe, today's price is not yesterday's price. So we'll talk about that <laughs> offline, but um, let's jump right into the interview. So what led you to want to become a writer and where did your fascination of boy groups come from? Yeah, those are good questions. Um, I actually knew I wanted to be a music writer specifically, or I should say journalist, right? I'm not a songwriter. Uh, that is that is not a dream I've ever had and there's no talent to back it up. So I'm glad I didn't go down that path. Um, but I knew I wanted to write about music um, since I was like 11 or 12. And that just kind of came from, you know, reading my dad's old Rolling Stones and, and like kind of developing my own musical taste and realizing that music could be an identity for me. It's how I could like relate to other people and make friends with them. Um, I also grew up like a military brat. So I moved around a lot and I spent a lot of time in Germany and it was kind of cool to see how like liking the same artist was like a shared language, even if you like can't completely communicate with people in, in a different culture, a different country, different continent. Um, so I sort of knew early on and then my entire life became, okay, get out of high school so I could go to a good college, get to a good college and become a music journalist. Of course, there are so many avenues and ways in which to do it. There's some, some of the most brilliant people I know in this field, like didn't go to school, did alternative paths and, you know, made it work. But for me, my parents are pretty traditionalist and that was sort of my path. I got to New York City, started interning, really kind of became a showman, was networking with everybody, really just trying to prove my worth and uh, eventually got some jobs, got some bylines. And that's kind of how it all started. Um, my interest in boy bands specifically kind of came a little bit later. Um, as a kid, I really liked Backstreet Boys and then like through my mom, like Boys to Men, um, of course, which is like Backstreet Boys wouldn't exist without them. And we could certainly get into that kind of stuff. Um, but I, I kind of abandoned them for rock music because it was just sort of I'm 30 and I think for like my age group there was a time period in our adolescence where like pop punk and emo and that kind of stuff was the big popular music on like MTV's TRL and stuff and that became my focus and it wasn't until college where I decided hey I still love pop music. This is like One Direction is, is back and big and, and then there are also these other sort of underrated boy bands that are trying to like make it um like big time big time rush a little bit but like mindless behavior and all these like r&b like boy groups um and i was thinking like i really love this music why can't i write about it seriously or critically um and then i kind of realized oh it's because the way that we talk about this music is still very gendered where there's this like image of the hysterical fangirl who's like screaming and losing her mind and crying and like wetting her underwear. She's so excited. She's like, she's a monster almost. And I found that to be kind of silly. Um, and so I was like, you know what, I'm going to take this thing that I love very seriously and, you know, sort of see what comes of that. And then 
you know, a couple of years later, I'm writing a book. So it worked out. <laughs> right. Definitely a great piece, fascinating read and very animated in terms of drawings, put you in the mind of a comic book. But it's funny how you mentioned the stereotypical boy band profile and how in the movie Turning Red, Billy Eilish and her brother Phineas definitely study NSYNC and Backstreet Boys catalog with Four Towns. Oh, they absolutely did. And they, it's kind of crazy because I remember watching the credits the first time I watched the movie with my partner. And I was like, you know, I felt like that was a good like Backstreet Boys ballad, but right now they would be a key change. And then when you hear the full song, there was a key change. Like everything about like what they do is so specifically, uh, <laughs> it's, it's formulaic, but, but it like, it's because the formula works, right? It's like, you know, there's the idea of like music, pop music having a certain math to it. Um, and they nailed it. And that movie is so, is so fun. And also something I think that can only have happened contemporarily where we're like, oh, we can sort of like poke fun at this stuff, but we can also tell the story of like a young girl, especially um, a young girl of color kind of coming into her own in, in middle school. I love that movie. Obviously I, I'm a fan uh, for a lot of reasons, but they really, they do the boy band story well. They do it justice for sure. Yeah, they did it fairly well because that was my childhood era, middle school, high school, Bashy Boys, Insane, Gallifo, 98 Degrees, O-Town, that whole phenomenon. And you could tell they studied TRL very well and how for these group of kids, NSYNC was how my generation looked at Jackson 5 or the Osmonds. Yes, yeah. Oh, and I love that you brought up the Osmonds because I feel for in what in some weird way, I feel like they kind of get left out of the story a little bit. I think maybe because of uh, honestly Mormonism and we don't really like to talk about religion in, in like pop music a lot uh, or at least like that kind of stuff but yeah it, it's every I like to tell everybody that like every generation kind of gets their own mm -hmm. one of these bands like it never goes away ever since people realized one that like girls love boys who sing in harmony and like wear cute outfits and do the whole thing. And, and we do have the Jackson five and those groups, the temptations of four tops, all these groups to think for that Motown specifically. Um, and then two, that you can make a lot of money off of that. So, you know what, like BTS just said that they are like taking a break, but you know, it's, it's not going to be long before there's another like group of young men that uh, write some or perform some catchy songs that we all love. Mm -hmm. And if we take a look at the modern day boy band craze from Boston, Massachusetts and Washington DC, New Edition pretty much laid the template for the modern day boy group. And I had a chance to interview Maurice Starr and Brooke Payne and kind of hear from them from the horse's mouth, New Edition's beginnings of dancing in the miniseries and how 1978, they were just performing locally in talent shows in and around Boston. And then four plus years later, they're changing the face of the pop industry. And then later on from Dorchester comes New Kids on the Block, which pretty much took what New Edition did and just exploded it onto the pop side. But now I interviewed Danny Wood and Danny made it clear from day one that they looked up to New Edition. New Edition was the template. They always let it be known no new edition, no us. Yes, damn, you could write my book. Why did I do it? <laughs> you could do it. You could, you could have done it. Um, yeah, that's that's all amazing. And I'm also very jealous you got to speak to Maurice Star. I would I would love to talk to him. Um, yeah, I think one thing that's that's interesting is like a lot of boy bands, I even in like interviews, you'll notice like throughout the years, different generations, eras, 
they'll always kind of like hype up the groups that came before them, but say like they're very different or whatever. I've always loved that new kids on the block has always been like, it all comes from new edition. They've always been like, this is, this is the template. This is how, this is where the form comes from. And I agree with that in a lot of ways. I really think that like, we don't really see the word boy band like in music history or whatever until the eighties. And I think a lot of that is like, it's, it's related to new kids on the block becoming the sort of like global phenomenon that it did, but it's really new edition. And I would also say Menudo in Puerto Rico that kind of created that form that like creates everything, the ripple that follows. Right. Cause it's like, we do have Motown, we do have the Beatles, we do have the Osmonds, as you mentioned, all of these things that I think are like proto boy bands, but it's really like new edition. That's like, this is the first. And there are a lot of things that didn't allow them get to get to the size of new kids on the block. Um, for, for many reasons, race being the most obvious one, but then also like different, like, you know, internal dilemmas and stuff with Marie Starr and, and all, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but they really are like the, the template. They are the, the foundation for sure. Right. And whatever group do you know of where all the members had even bigger success solely come back together, have more success as a group and is still standing 40 plus years later. And Michael Bivens discovered one of the best selling male pop groups of all time, Boys to Men which comes from the new edition tree. Yeah, absolutely. Have you seen um, the the BET like docuseries on, on new edition that came out a couple of years ago? Yeah, I definitely saw that. And I'm a huge new edition fan. So I played, paid close attention to make sure that they got everything correct. And they hit it out the park with casting, with the songs. And it was just overall a great miniseries. And it showed people outside of, let's say African-American culture that knew what we've been knowing since 83, that new edition is an institution, is a brand. And the next thing up for new edition, I feel is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, if you're on the voting committee, vote for new edition, please and thank you. <laughs> I a million percent agree. And they, they should be in there. It's a crime that they're not. Um, I, I do get a vote. So I'm like, I, I'm... <laughs> I'll send an email. I want him in as well. Um, yeah, but that series I, I thought was so good. It's like maybe one of the better music docuseries because it's so hard to really do these stories justice because I think people kind of get so, especially in like what we're talking about, like boy groups or like vocal groups or whatever, because there's such a history of like exploitation and like money grubbing and all these sort of like cautionary tale type things, especially in the new edition story. And like, it's so hard to do those things well and generously while also highlighting like they laid the foundation. They are the first, they did all these things and they did such a good job. I mean, like that, that mini series is like my Elvis movie, you know, like I just thought, mm -hmm. I just thought they did such a great job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I want to touch back on new kids for a quick second, kind of refer back mm -hmm. to my interview with Danny, because that was done a year before the block and before they got back together and how a mm -hmm. lot of people still don't understand that new kids came up as an R&B group. They were put together to win over the R&B consumer Please Don't Go Girl was marketed as an R&B record and they did a video that was initially only seen on BET, but it was only until a pop station out of Florida started playing it that Columbia started getting requests and for ads on pop radio. And then as we all know, the rest is history and pop radio took a hold, but new kids never forgot their R&B roots. And it was evident on the Face the Music album, but Danny stated that, hey, everything we didn't do was pop. 
So it was kind of weird once the pop train got behind us because we felt we were an R&B group at the core. And I think people just took everything out of proportion once Hanging Tough and Step by Step just went massive. Right. That's exactly right. And I think it's it's a good thing to highlight that. Like Face the Music, I think is good too, because it's like when you have a band that like before, like, you know, Jonathan left and, and there's like a moment where there's like, it seems like maybe the group is fracturing or something's happening. There's going to be pivotal change and they're choosing to go back to the roots or choosing to go back to R&B. Then you know that that's where their heart is. Like that is the music that they love most on this planet. Like they were huge fans of Marie Star before even like, you know, being kind of brought together by him you know after new edition so it really shows like what they were into musically um that they were like educated in that music too also growing up in boston and you know some of them can dance <laughs> unlike some other boy bands you can talk about in history uh, they really they really knew that music and and they loved that music and they were pulling from that music in a way that feels really sort of authentic and like i honestly think that's probably one of the reasons why you know they're still touring and they're on that tour with like salt and pepper that looks insane that I would love to go to. Um, and, and they're doing it because they, they truly love it. And they're, you know, they're one of the greatest. Yeah. I caught the mixtape tour about three years ago when they were in Vegas, it was them, salt and pepper, naughty by nature, Tiffany and Debbie Gibson. And it was a great show. You wouldn't be disappointed. It felt like soccer moms, stay at home moms were living their childhood. You've probably taken the posters off of their walls, the buttons, dusting off the dolls from the attic. And it was just a way to escape and relive when times were a little simpler. But I want to deviate real quickly for a minute. Do you think sure. the Beach Boys would be considered by definition a boy group? See, I, I really had, it's funny. I wrote this book, but then I feel like my definition changes day to day or how people like discuss something like this. I like my gut reaction is to say no, um, primarily because they are obviously like, you know, come from a vocal group tradition or performing secular songs, but they're also instrumentalists and they have a lot of fans, but their fans are a lot of mixed like gender dynamics. Like so much of what a boy band is really hard or a boy group rather, I think is kind of hard to define, but you sort of know based on its audience, its legacy, how it's been discussed in the media, how it's marketed. And I feel like maybe Beach Boys are a little outside of that. However, if you have an argument for me about why they are, sometimes I'll agree. Because I think that's what's so fun about this is because there is such a tradition that we can pull from and we can see like with each decade, each generation getting their own. But then there's so much like flexibility and, and like malleability and like what we decide a boy band is. Because, you know, some people tell me like boys to men aren't a boy band because or a boy group, whatever you want to say, because uh, their songs are more mature. They come from a more specific R&B tradition. I think a lot of it is marketing, um, you know, that like they obviously weren't treated like a thing for young girls and children like Backstreet Boys were, what have you. And there are a lot of reasons for that, of course, that we could get into. But it's, it's a little complicated, but I'm, I'm interested to hear your opinion. I think Beach Boys, if you look at their earlier catalog, like Surfing USA, Surfer Girl, definitely in yeah. the vein of a boy group. But then once they hit Pet Sounds, that was when Brian Wilson became more experimental and wanted to shed that poppy sound, that image. And it pretty much laid the groundwork for the Beatles and Sgt. Pepper's. I believe in previous interviews, Paul McCartney has stated that album inspired them to do Sgt. Pepper's. Then I went back and listened to the Beatles catalog from the debut all the way up to Let It Be. And I found myself more of a fan of their earlier stuff, like around Help 
and mm-hmm. the White Album, Rubber Soul, that era of the Beatles were, was pretty much groundbreaking for me. And Lennon McCartney, my opinion, best songwriting duo ever. I I I agree with you. I'm not gonna fight you. I'm not gonna fight you on that point. That's really interesting to me. You know, no one like I've been talking about this book and boy bands like for my whole life. It feels like no one has ever actually asked me about the Beach Boys. That's something I'm gonna I'm gonna sit on and I'm gonna discuss, and then you'll have to have me back and I'll have all these opinions on it. Um, but yeah, the, the Beatles are really interesting to me because I think like in a lot of ways they are also sort of the foundation of this rock and roll fans really hate when I say that because they like to think like because you know there's still like a sort of stigma sometimes around like a boy group because it's it seems like infantilizing or limiting of like who your audience is and what you can do creatively but like young women love the Beatles more than anybody else and sort of created their career they had those uniform looks they had those juicy harmonies um a lot of the Beatles songwriting I think feels like it's straight out of Motown like I know that they loved like the, they loved like the Supremes they love those like um women vocal groups and and that kind of informs their songwriting which I think too is, is sort of part of the story um but yeah I, I I definitely think that they fit in that tradition in a lot of ways and then even you know just the fact that we call their fans Beatlemaniacs and now we call all you know pop music fans some version of that right like they mm-hmm. all have an army name or whatever a fan army name um so they're they're certainly part of that history right and then we could go further back to groups like frankie lyman and the teenagers uh frankie valley and the four seasons all those doo-wop groups that came out of the 50s pretty much honed in r&b and they pretty much had a dominant female fan base but now let's forward it from new kids they not only inspired everything in the u.s but they also inspired a man by the name of Nigel Martin-Smith to create his own version of New Kids on the Block over in the UK, consisting of five men, Gary Barlow, Howard Orange, Jason Donald, Mark Owen, and Robbie Williams, collectively known as Take That. So why do you think Take That was so huge in Europe, but over in the US, Back for Good was their only hit and they never really seemed to really break over here in America? Yeah, it's interesting. And it's funny because I usually the people who ask me this question are English or Australian. So kudos or Canadian, really. So kudos to you for for asking. Um, I think there are a variety of reasons. The sort of boring reason is when they got their deal with Clive Davis and Arista in the US, it was like 1993, 1994 or something. And the Backstreet Boys were already formed. So it's like we were on to the next sort of thing. Um, there's also at that time period, there's this, the weird thing happening in the US where like we want our pop groups to be American. Like we like, we liked New Kids on the Block. We like New Edition, of course, then like Backstreet Boys and NSYNC come. There's something about like keeping it, keeping it at home with the exception of the Beatles, of course. But that, at that point, that's like 20, 30 years in the past. Right. So there's something about us. Like we want, we want the like sort of American group or whatever. Um, it's really interesting to me because I think of it, I, it's just like a, a strange point in time. Cause like they had the hits. There's no reason that they shouldn't have been massively popular in the U S I just, I, you know, I think a lot of it is, you know, it's pre-internet or pre, you know, internet being in everybody's home and on their phone. And perhaps there wasn't as much exposure. It's really, it's, it's fascinating to me. And then of course, you know, like, I think by the time that America really wanted a boy band, sort of another boy band post, um, 
new kids on the block. I should also say that I think uh, I've noticed that there's this sort of trend that like when we have a group and we love them when they break up or we lose interest, there's a period where there is like a couple of years where there isn't a big group on top, typically because people are a little bit exhausted or the girls that love them are now in college. There's like a little bit of a like a lag. Um, and I feel like they kind of hit during that lag where it's like, we're not ready for the next boy group. And then of course, Robbie left. Uh, so I think at the time that like when America would have really been on board, um, you know, the, the heartthrob <laughs> left the band. What are you yeah. going to do then? Yeah. Robbie was the resident bad boy. But when I went back and listened to take that's catalog, especially the everything changes album, the nobody else album, pray sure. Of course, back for good love. Don't live here anymore. Great records. Gary Barlow could have had a great career as an AC artist here in America because his songwriting was super duper strong. But the reason why I mentioned Take That was because when they split, that led for two groups out of Orlando, Florida to go over and start cutting their teeth. And Shaq mentioned in the story how uh, when Bastion Boys and NSYNC were just getting started, that he had a home studio in his Orlando home that he was charging them 25 bucks an hour to use his home studio and that he could have had a chance to sign both groups to Twism. Now, with Bashy Boys and NSYNC, what do you think was the two stark differences between both groups and what led to the massive appeal of both? Oh my gosh, such a good question. But I have to stop you real quick and say, like, I love the Shaq antidote because I remember the first time I read Lance Bass's memoir, all I remembered from it was like, he met Shaq and he wanted to go to space. Those were like the two details that stuck out with me. Um, but what's what's so fascinating about uh, Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, and I say it in that order purposely because Backstreet Boys came first, the manager who created Backstreet Boys this guy, Lou Pearlman, also created NSYNC to compete with Backstreet Boys. There's this sort of famous quote he has where he says, like, where there's Coke, there's Pepsi. Somebody saw that he was had a lot of success with Backstreet Boys, was going to create the competition. So he created it himself, which is sort of like a bit of sinister, but really fascinating sort of music business history. Uh, Backstreet Boys are creative because this guy, Lou Pearlman, actually has an airplane business, which is kind of strange and he rents a private jet to new kids on the block and on one of these jets he sort of has this conversation and he learns that they make a lot of money specifically in merchandising but you know just by virtue of being new kids on the block and he decides boy bands boy groups etc seem like a good way to make money I'm going to get into this, you know, whatever. I also like handsome boys. Let's, let's do this. And so he creates Backstreet Boys by putting out an ad in the local paper, the Orlando Sentinel, and gets this group together. These are guys who are performing at like Walt Disney World. They're performing at Universal Studios because again, it's Orlando, Florida. Um, and he builds this boy band with the help of Johnny Wright, who was the road manager for New Kids on the Block and then becomes a manager of Backstreet Boys and also in sync, perhaps the most influential managerial character in in this sort of like teen pop boy band time period um and, and musical phenomenon and they blow up to enormous size i i think a lot of it is because backstreet boys they were young they were cute uh they danced well they sang well they did a lot of ballads they were really sort of performing in the style of like boys to men the example i always use is listen to Backstreet Boys, I'll Never Break Your Heart, next uh, end of the road, and like spot the difference. They were really <laughs> trying to be, you know, the like white teenage boy version of, of uh, 
boys to men and it worked fabulously they started you know working with like disney channel and playing planet hollywood and it sort of explodes um and then you know a couple of years later uh pearlman decides hey i had so much success the first time let's do it again creates nsync and sort of uh i think they get the sort of benefit of being the second group where they can sort of see what the backstreet boys did really well and grow from it so they become i always consider them like a little bit more energetic they have more of like the big pop song i mean both of them obviously have massive massive some of the biggest hits of all time in the history of recording music ever but they they're a little bit more energetic they're even more dancey you know Backstreet boys in comparison suddenly seem a little bit moodier um and you know when backstreet boys ends up having the best-selling album of all time with millennium in 1999 something like 1.3 million records sold uh, no strings attached. The NSYNC album comes out a year or two later, and it's like 2.4 million sold in a week. Um, so, so they're sort of direct competition, but kind of cut from the same cloth. And it's, it's a really interesting time period because there are a lot of those music rivalries, right? Like in the in the teen pop, like female space, you see Britney Spears versus Christina Aguilera, and you know, it really the Coke versus Pepsi thing really sticks with me because it was so of that time. Um, beyond, and then there are all the other copycat, or not copycat, but the other sort of smaller boy bands like uh, LFO, Dream Street, uh, O Town, like you were saying. Right. And I had a chance to interview Donna Wright and she was pretty much telling me that when both groups were around being formed, it was like whatever Backstreet turned down, NSYNC got because initially that Disney special was supposed to go to Backstreet Boys, but they felt, no, we're too old for Disney, but not knowing that's your demo. And that's what led NSYNC to really catch fire here in the U.S. in the rest of its history. But I also want to mention how Sweden, Sweden played an important role in the late 90s, early 2000s, teen pop phenomenon, especially Chiron, Pop Studios, uh, the late Dennis Pop, Max Martin. And also I want to mention Herbie Creechlow. You can catch my interview with Herbie Creechlow on Beyond the Album Cover where he talks about that whole history with Ace of Bass and how that sound pretty much made its way stateside when Bashy Boys and NSYNC wrote big over here in America. So can we talk about the importance of Sweden and their musical influence on uh, teen pop here in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of exactly what you said. You're on studios, Denise Pop, Max Martin, who everybody knows now from like every big he's written with for like uh, Taylor Swift, Katy Perry, like Rihanna, like all these all these sort of people, um, these this massive, massive pop songwriters. Yeah, it's. The, that specific sound of that, like people always say 90s, it's more like late 90s, early 2000s pop music all comes from Sweden, from Stockholm. Um, the sort of like um, angular, like synth sounds, uh, the, the very structure. I, I said earlier about this idea about musical math. That's a Max Martin-ism where he sort of can construct a song based on like, you need to hit the chorus at this, this many seconds into a song. You need to repeat the third lyrical line. It's very uh, particular, which might make it sound limiting or, or constraining, but it actually has the opposite effect where it gives you sort of this framework in which to write these incredibly huge hits. Um, I'd also say that like beyond sort of Sweden, there's such a story of like Western Europe in, in the boy band story, because for a long time, 
Um, and this is something like the Backstreet Boys and, and NSYNC and groups of this time period have said in, in many interviews kind of ad nauseum. In the early 90s, it really felt like there wasn't, right after New Kids on the Block, there wasn't a huge space for boy bands. Um, I mean, this is the time where like Nirvana's around, grunge is big, and we're also seeing uh, more like mainstream sort of white radio acceptance of, of hip hop and, and rap music for the first time. And so it didn't seem like like these like incredibly sort of saccharine like jovial boy bands had much space so they went to europe where uh in particular germany has always been very like embrace of, of um boy bands they've always loved the kind of like cute young like boy especially americans um they, they like that sort of image so they're very popular there so that's one of the reasons why perlman kind of sent them to europe because they were like this is where the space is figure out your stuff here and then when it works come to america and do your thing and then, of course, you have these incredible pop songwriters in Sweden. They're becoming massively popular in Western Europe. And then they come back to America. And in the early days, no one's meeting them at the airport. They're unknown and they're huge in Europe. And then, of course, like who, your friends at school aren't going to believe you. Uh, and then you have to do it all over again. But yeah, Sweden is so it's interesting because it's always been this, this like incredible hotbed for pop songwriters you know you look at any big pop release now like that the charts you can look at the credits and quite often there is a swedish songwriter involved or a swedish producer involved right yeah because we can go as far back as um like abba and rock set and then we can look at the material with robin and how her stuff when it came out in america predated what britney and christina did by a year or two and she definitely had that Pop R&B mole in the same vein of Pink, her first album before she got with Linda Perry and just went full-blown rock. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I always think of what I listen to, maybe not the first Britney out, Britney Spears album, but the second one, I'm like, I wonder if any of these like synth lines were written for Robin originally. And, and ABBA too, there's so much of that like call and response moment where like you sing a part and then they sing a part lower or higher or whatever in, in, a, in a hook. That's, that's so ABBA, that's so Swedish. And that is, you know, the bedrock of so much pop music of this time period. And also, I, you know, like K-pop. In, in the sort of modern iteration as we continue down this history you're running us through. Mm, but the one boy group who I felt should have been bigger, they were huge in Europe. They were the second biggest group in Europe next to the Spice Girls, famous last name and looks, but for some reason never really took off in the U.S. was 3T. And of course, they're the sons of uh, Tito Jackson of the famous Jackson family. I mean, that Brotherhood album, I still wear that out to this day. And it was one of the early albums that had early writing credits by young Robin Thicke. I do not know it was so massively popular in Europe. See, this is a, that's a great thing also about this history is there's, you know, there's always some bands that are going to be a little bit of a blind spot. Yeah, which is crazy because I mean, your last name is Jackson. Your, your uncle's Michael, your aunt is Janet, your uncle's Jermaine. I mean, you come from the first family of pop and how did it not really <laughs> yeah. translate in America to success is mind boggling to me. And then another group, we're going to go into underrated boy groups. Uh, All right, let's under, do it. Two underrated boy groups for you that I don't know you're familiar with, but I think you should really check out. Um, I'm taking notes. <laughs> Barrio Boys, their How We Roll album. Definitely, to me, sounded like an album Bashy Boys probably would have came out with when they first dropped. It were put together uh -huh. by Joe Jacket. He was in the same camp with New Kids on the Block with Johnny Wright. Mm -hmm. um, another one, I don't know if you're familiar with the group Troop. Mm. 
you should definitely check them out. They're my second favorite board group of all time, right behind New Edition. And um, Steve Russell Hart's one of the members of Troop. He wrote records for B2K, who you mentioned in the book. He wrote uh, yes. The Reason Why I Love You for B2K. He wrote Gas to Be for B2K. So if you like some of B2K's material, definitely check out Troop. Um, I felt C-Note was underrated. They were out of the Transcon camp, but I felt yes. like um, they didn't do what they needed to do as far as taking them to maybe Latin America first, breaking them before coming over here to the U.S., and then another boy group, they weren't underrated. They were just one hit away from having a massive U.S. hit. And they had the chance to be one of the most successful, I think, British boy groups in the U.S. next to the Beatles was five. Yes. Yeah. You know, um, I'm actually, I'm sure you know this, that um, Bye 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 was originally written for five. Mm -hmm. And the original version of the song had had a, a rap section and then I, the, the folklore is that Justin Timberlake was like no we don't need that but I don't know I'm sure it was like somebody in Sweden who like realized kind of quickly on uh, yeah but but five had a lot of there's so many especially uh, like the British boy bands that I'm sort of shocked weren't a more of a presence even like Boyzone I, I or like yeah. in the U.S. it's yeah. just uh, for but I guess you sort of have to also think of the time period where like, uh, you know, it was way easier to be a little bit more limiting based on your region. Um, you know, we weren't as curious about music mm. globally. And I'm also, I just want to like double down on what you said about C-Note because I agree with you. Cause I think like, do like if anybody could have broken um, a Latino boy band, do you think it'd be Pearlman? He's like having success with all these bands. He created making the band with O-Town before Diddy took over or whatever. Mm. Um, it's really, it, you would think that he would have figured it out, but it, it's absolutely what you said. Like the way to do that would have been take him to Puerto Rico, take him to Venezuela, take him to Mexico, break him down in Latin America, and then, and then bring him, bring him back. Right. Um, and I, I still have the different kind of love CD. And also um, this group, I felt got overshadowed because of the success for I Want to Sex You Up. But if you go listen to the Time and Chance album, Color Me Bad was something serious. Brian Abrams could sing his face off. You can catch my throwback interview online with Kevin, Katie Thornton from Color Me Bad. But like I said, I want to sex you up pretty much overshadow vocally and look-wise what Color Me Bad did. Because think about it, early 90s, I think America really wasn't ready for a multiracial boy group. They certainly weren't. Yeah, I, I also love Call Me Bad, but in my mind, and this is definitely because I was like a child then, I was like, they were more mature. And then, you know, like at that point in time, I'm like a little kid, I'm the boy band audience, right? So it's like, if it's a little bit mature, then you maybe don't get cast into this tradition. And by that, I mean, simply just like the word sex, you know, is intimidating for kids. Um, but yeah, they, they had hits for sure. They had hits for days. Right, because when I interviewed KT, he was telling me that because of the success, but I want to sex you up. Um, Cassandra Mills, who was the head of Giant, was telling them, Hey, you guys got to get in the studio, record an album because people weren't buying the soundtrack, they were just gobbling up the single and they recorded mm. their debut album CMB, I think, six weeks' time. And they had hits off that album, such as, Of course, I want to sex you up, All for Love, Thinking Back, I Adore Me or More. And you know, like I said, the look was unique for the time. Vocally, they could sing like nobody's business. And that was a renaissance in that period of the early to mid-90s of male vocal groups. Like we mentioned Boyz II Men earlier, Color Me Bad, Shy, Portrait, Silk, 
H-Town and Jodeci and how, you know, it wasn't really the traditional boy group per se, as far as look and aesthetics. It was more on the vocal side, because if you look at Boys to Men, the Cooley High Harmony album, to me, was the better album than two. But they knew, like, hey, in order to have pop success, we got to have that big money song. And, of course, that led mm-hmm. to End of the Road and all their pop hits that they're known and loved for today. But I felt Cooley High Harmony was the better album, and it was one of the early albums that featured production done by a young Dallas Austin before he linked up and started doing work with TLC. Yeah. Wow. I feel like I'm learning a lot from this conversation. You're really, <laughs> you're really schooling me. I, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really sort of interesting too. Cause I always think, and, and maybe this is something you've considered too, of, of, of these like records of this time period, all of the reasons why they didn't break in the way that it seems like they could. And, and listening back, do you think that like, if the conditions were different, if it was more like today and we're like more welcoming of like multicultural groups, we are like more welcoming, we're like more sex positive or all these things, if they would have had like more success, do you ever yeah. like wonder yeah, about, I, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think it would have been different for some of the groups if we were more open-minded and not right. all pro-America because I was probably the only American bumping Westlife's album because I thought Westlife <laughs> was was really dope like we you mentioned Boyzone uh, created by Louis Walsh which was the Irish yeah. answer to take that and Westlife was pretty much the answer to Boyzone and um speaking of groups overseas I interviewed um KG from the British boy group M8 um they had a record called uh I got a little something for you that was on the bad boy soundtrack and they covered happy by surface and we were talking about the different dynamics between how it was for a group, let's say like a Take That, and a group for them, which was consisted of four Black British boys, and how, you know, when you're doing that type of music, especially over there, and given Britain's history with race and with Blacks, and how it's like, eh, you know, you stick to your side of the fence, uh, you may be lucky if you may see a Black act on top of the pops. Right. Yeah, that's, yeah, I guess it's just, you know, the same, the same sort of behavior mindset, just in different ways. And also it's, and it is interesting too, to think of like English acts at that time, because still, I mean, obviously they were having success and and still were a little bit like regionalized considering like how the U.S. wasn't immediately embracing them, but it's still a time period where like, if their mark of success for them would have been to break in America. And for, and I think that's like sort of changed in the last couple of years. And then of course, you know, in, in at least this particular story of, of boy groups and like the sort of the most mainstream acts of all time that, that clearly changes with, you know, One Direction who are at least partially also thrown together by Lewis Walsh from Westlife and, and everything is so related. It's crazy. Yeah, it's either Louis Walsh or Simon Cowell. And now we mentioned Menudo earlier and you were in the HBO Max uh, documentary uh, Menudo Forever Young, which is great, but you know, I saw all of it, so I won't spoil it for you. And I kind of <laughs> felt RCA dropped the ball and pretty much taking Menudo's energy and fire from Latin America and breaking them in the US, where I thought it should have been easy as pie, where it was like, hey, see what New Edition is doing? Just take some of what New Edition is doing, add a little bit of Latin flavor to it. And boom, or at least take a look at what was going on with freestyle with Lisa Lisa and the Colt Jam and everything that was coming out of either New York or Miami with that sound. And boom, or just be like, hey, we're going to the U.S. market. 
let me just switch up all of the members and just get kids who are bilingual so I can tap into the English and Spanish market. Yeah, I think there are so many. It's like you could play what if forever with that group. Cause I just think there's so many issues. Whenever you like watch, even and in that documentary, but it's like very easy to find too on you know on like YouTube or whatever. Like 60 minutes clips of like uh, you know some of these like famous news anchors talking about like Menudo the phenomenon, and it's very clear that like the sort of mainstream and I'm going to say in air quotes like sort of white America really did not know what to do with Menudo. When I say that, I mean you know because of like boy bands, traditionally the biggest ones in America have have been white for a variety of reasons, <laughs> namely the race. Um, but with Menudo, it really seemed like they were sort of like cast as this like other phenomenon, this like sort of novelty act, when in fact they were together for 30 years. I mean, with many different iterations, but they were such a phenomenon on their own, but they weren't treated as like, what they were they were just thought of as like oh maybe it's a version of the Beatles for Latin America isn't it interesting to see it here and then you see all these like clips of these girls like losing it they're so excited and like you know especially in like you know um like the like in 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 some of the barrios and and, and in Puerto Rico too but like in the, in the U.S. and any sort of Latin music communities and it's not just Spanish singing uh Spanish language fans or English language or English speaking fans who are falling in love with this group and it really just seems like we were they weren't even at the major label like approaching them in a way that made any real sense I mean they did at least have the foresight to for most of the time have a member who spoke some English not all of the time and that's in different iterations of the band but it really just is so crazy to me how much they've kind of fumbled the ball for, for lack of a better term and that is also something that I think um in like the sort of modern era uh, K-pop was able to understand immediately there is no K-pop act that breaks in the U.S. that does not have a member, a leader, like the front person who speaks English, like conversationally enough to like sort of speak for the whole group. Right. It's fascinating. Right. Because when I look at Menudo and I kind of think sometimes, hey, maybe take the right stuff or please don't go girl, put it on Menudo. That would have been a smash hit because when you look at Ricky Martin during that period, he was sure he kind of reminded me of Joey. And New Kids, you know, very short, very Chubrick and definitely yeah. angelic. And he was like the golden child during that period of Menudo, in addition to um Robbie Rosa. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Draco Rosa. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, and that's like a key to like the boy band story, right? Like all of them have that now, and that is something that we sort of learned from from Menudo. But yeah, it is. And then, you know, there's sort of the tragic exploitative figures behind the scenes um, and so many complications that also become so much of, of this history. But yeah, it's, it's funny, you know, when I was like telling people about the Menudo series, they're like, some people remember very distinctly how big of a phenomenon Menudo was and, and you know, Menudoitis and all these ideas. And then other people, especially younger people, I'll have to explain it as like, this is the biggest group that Latin America has ever produced. And for some reason that makes me feel, it's there's a certain tragedy in, in, in my mind in that because mm. they were around for so long, they were so big, they were so marketed. It really just like, I, I don't think the US like music marketplace knew where to make them fit in, which I do think is also a good parallel, at least a little bit for, for New Edition, because in my mind, they, they, they should have been as big as New Kids on the Block. Obviously, there are a lot of reasons why they weren't able to do that, but it's just like if, you know, in the same way that New Kids on the Block was marketed on, on like, 
you know, at the time they were still using urban radio as, as the language of it or whatever before that Florida radio station that put them on pop radio. Think about what would have happened if, if New Edition had the same opportunities, mm-hmm. um, you know. Yeah, because when I look at the Menudo merch, they were moving merch like new kids. I mean, same they thing, were... the dolls, the cartoons. It was pretty much the same thing that new kids was doing, but it was on the Latinx tip. Yeah, absolutely. And feels very, and, and I'm happy that like we live in a time where we're like talking about their story now and, and what they were able to do because you gotta remember, they started the first iteration of Menudo in, in 1977. That's, you know, and, and mm-hmm. like uh, New Edition, 1978. It's like very, it's, it, it predates what a lot of people think. Um, right. Quite the phenomenon. Right, but it was very creative. Eduardo Diaz said, hey, to keep the group fresh and to stay forever young, swap them out at 16 and how Menudo laid the groundwork for what was later come with, you know, the Latin boy groups, like we mentioned Barrio Boys earlier, CNCO, even the success for the likes of, let's say today, Bad Bunny, even though he's not in Mm -hmm. a boy group, you know, his success wouldn't have been possible with Menudo laying the groundwork. I agree. Yeah. And I would also say like, Aventura, because you know, there's like Romeo Santos, who's like Dominican and, and Puerto Rican and, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, there's definitely a, a sort of a long, a long history of that. I and I, I love the connection because I connect Menudo and Bad Bunny all the time. So thank you for that one. <laughs> right. Now back to Bashy Boys. I had a chance to see them live for the first time last month in Albuquerque. And man, they still got it. And it's crazy to believe that next year will be 30 years for Backstreet Boys together 30 years 1993 yeah. 2023 is crazy almost 30 years oh I, i'm so glad you went to that show because i i've also went to the store because it's the dna tour that's been off put off because of uh, of covid obviously but yeah i i saw it too and um i was out in la for work stuff um and and i saw them at the hollywood bowl and i'd never been and they were amazing i, I was like dang i need to start doing my uh, like my cardio so i can have as much energy as aj <laughs> Right. Yeah, but it's crazy. Like vocally, they still sound sharp. And we mentioned 98 Degrees briefly, but I want to go back to them. Um, I had a chance Mm -hmm. to interview Jeff Timmons and how their whole get up and mindset was when they first came out. We want to pretty much do what Boyz II Men is doing and pretty much add our own flavor to it. Because that debut album, Solid R&B, one of my favorite albums, Nick Lachey, vocally, is a problem if you have not seen mass single when you want it you got to look at it but 98 degrees like new kids at the core r&b but then of course once label head switched they saw what bashy boys is doing was like hey we're gonna steer you guys towards the pop realm but at the end of the day they're an r&b group at the core pretty much Absolutely. I think that's like, you know, you'll, I, I think that's a trend that you're identifying where it's like the best or like the strongest vocal performers in this space are typically the ones that come from R&B. Mm. Right. It's like, yeah. cause, cause they, they, they know, they just know harmonies better than, you know, as much as I love me some like bubblegum pop, <laughs> like some like lighthearted, lighthearted uh, pop songwriting. It's, it's those, it's those guys who could do those R&B harmonies that really, they really know what they're doing that have the strongest singers. Right. And you mentioned um, K-pop. That was a phenomenon that took me by surprise in how um, the group CO Taji, you may correct me on the last name pronunciation if I butchered it, and boys, how they pretty much laid the groundwork 
for what was to come with K-pop because you could tell that they were easy listening to everything that was coming over in America um, that was out in the 90s, early 2000s with New Jack Swing and incorporation of rap and how they added their own flavor to that and that laid the groundwork for what was to later come with BTS. Now, I felt Big Bang should have been the first because Bad Boy, I'm with you. I think had Bad Boy would have gotten a hold, I think Big Bang would have had the same success that BTS has said. Because to me, it felt like the whole K-pop scene and the entertainment companies that put those K-pop groups together, it kind of felt like what Motown was doing, but on steroids. That's exactly right. All of that was perfectly put. Um, I think it's also important to say that like K-pop, like in South Korea, they've always had their own like pop music. This phenomenon is fairly new. And a lot of the reason is because like in the 80s, South Korea was still under a dictatorship. There was a limitation on what kind of music you can listen to. Um, so as soon as they get music and we're in the 90s, everybody wants to, they, they are listening to rap for the first time. They're listening to RV for the first time and it's blowing their minds. And then of course, you know, K-pop is sort of born out of that idea um they and because it's sort of a new phenomenon uh south korean government is like allowing at least one percent of its state budget which is still true to this day to go to entertainment there is actual government support of of these industries which is kind of interesting it's always kind of blows my mind as an american like to hear the government supporting the arts in a direct way like that uh, i know it's uh, not so rare in some other countries um, but you have this like infrastructure that's supporting all of these ideas. And then you have like the best songwriters, these companies who are going to try and mimic what has succeeded everywhere else in popular music. So what are they doing? They're looking at Motown. They're for a long time, they were do a lot of these groups were doing what Menudo did, what Eduardo Diaz created, which was replacing boys and if they like did it make sense in a group or um, if they aged out or they became harder to work with. There was a lot of that kind of changing of, of um, the guard or, or something. A little less so when a group becomes very famous because people tend to develop relationships with performers and all that sort of stuff. But they absolutely were pulling from all of that. Um, I would say that the main difference is um, at least in like the songwriting is that a lot of the times I remember when, especially even when Big Bang came out, because you're talking like second generation of, of K-pop groups. This is also when there are girl groups like Girls Generation, uh, which and two, two, 21, but it's spelled to anyone um, that produced CL. They're like getting Apple or like iPod commercials like this music was kind of in the periphery. Um, you know, people know Gangnam Style by Psy, uh, but it's still sort of what feels like a little bit novel to American ears, but Big Bang, they were sort of setting them up to be the big like K-pop boy band that breaks in America. I just think that it wasn't the right time. I, I think like BTS succeeded for a lot of reasons, um, in particular because they made it a point to be in America a lot and, and sort of American audiences like to be able to see, of course, the music that they love and, and feel that connection. And there's, um, RM who speaks such fabulous English and, and, and they all speak some English now too. Um, but uh, I'm sorry, I wanted to return to something earlier where you were saying it's like Motown on steroids. A lot of that is because of how mechanized the process is. A lot of these groups live together, they train together, they're sort of put together by people at a company, um, sort of listening to like, oh, we need like a base here. So let's get this guy. Oh, this person's too old. He's in the other group, that kind of mentality. And then in the actual songwriting, these songs are kind of constructed where they almost sound like 
three songs in one. There's like an incredible amount of like hooks and tempo changes and all these things happening. Um, I remember very early on in listening to K-pop, I was like, this sounds like this is an EDM song, but it's a hip hop song. But for some reason, there's this like gratuitous um, like guitar solo and there are all these things happening. Uh, it's very maximalist. And, and now I, I love it. But when I remember when I first heard it, I was like, this is too much, uh, which I think is true for a lot of things when you first hear it for the first time. Um, right. But yeah. Right. And the one group that gave the green light for boy groups to really come back into effect in the U.S., but we don't look at them as a traditional boy group because they were self-contained as far as playing their own instruments, songwriters. I mean, Middle of Nowhere, a huge album, and it set the stage for what was later to come with the Jonas Brothers. Can we just talk about the impact of Hanson? Oh, gosh, yeah. Hanson was, is, is like very much their own, I, I feel like, contained kind of boy band in this story where it's like they do play their own instruments, which was something we really hadn't seen in, unless you're like counting um you know the Beatles which I do but a lot of people don't so it's sort of this like rare phenomenon that's happening in the 90s already they're brothers which is you know also something that happens quite a lot but not too much right like you see it with the Osmonds obviously their family and then you see it later with the Jonas brothers um but Hanson's so fascinating to me because I kind of play around with the idea of them being a one-hit wonder in my book with Mbop because that's the one everybody knows but there are some diehard Hanson fans out here and I've read all of their emails who disagree with me quite considerably. Um, but they were, they were certainly of that time, but I sort of see them as outside of it. And I, I, I've always kind of in, been interested in, into what that idea was. And it could possibly be that for a lot of boy band fans or boy group fans, they were sort of by virtue of being instrumentalists, like more of like the pop rock leaning phenomenon at the time where like a lot of the boy bands, as we said, were pulling more from like R&B pop. So there was that interest that kind of allowed them to occupy their own space. But yeah, Hanson's fascinating to me. Right. And one group that I think was on the cusp of breaking big, but it was just wrong timing was a group called NLT. They had a record called That Girl. And uh, one of the members of that group uh, later went on to being Glee. I forget his character's name. The, his character that he played was the one that was in the wheelchair. He was a member oh. of, of that group NLT. So definitely check them out. Um, and also another boy group that you should definitely check out would be uh, Immature. They were uh, put together yes. by, of course, Chris Stokes, who later went on to put together B2K. B2K. And uh, Immature featured uh, Marcus Houston as the lead singer, mm -hmm. who some of us know as Roger from Sister Sister. And I felt Immature. I think they were just one breakout pop hit away because Never Lie kind of got pop play, but they never really had that one big pop record and that big pop success like B2K had. Because B2K, for me, they felt like, I felt like they took the template of what New Edition did as far as mm -hmm. R&B pop and carried it over because B2K was huge. They were huge. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's like, I'm ready for like, when they do the documentary series on B2K, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a huge fan. Yeah. In my mind, you know, I've like, I've spent some time with Immature, but like when B2K happened, I was like, this is it. This is it for me. I remember dancing to it at like my middle school dance or like um, a lot of, a lot of B2K songs, but yeah, it's, they should, 
I wish they would. Have they ever reunited? Now that I'm uh, thinking about it, I don't did, actually they, know. They did a uh, reunion screen tour a couple of years ago. Um, all four of them, Raz B, Omarion, J-Bug, and Lil Fizz. And, you know, like mm. I said, that was my era of high school. So a lot of girls from that time period were at that concert saying, you could take all my money. But um, I had mentioned Troop earlier and how Steve Russell Hart mm-hmm. wrote Gats to Beef with B2K. Uh, when I interviewed him, he was saying that the label head of Sony was a huge fan of Troop and was like, hey, we want a record similar to Troop, but current for this group. And that's where Gats to Beef with B2K came to be. Now, Troop, like I said, for me, they're up there with New Edition because Troop vocally, seeing their butts off, could dance their butts off. Take a look at the video for Spread My Wings. Legendary video. It's up there with If It Is In Love as, to me, one of the best choreographed boy band videos of all time. They were the West Coast version of New Edition. While New Edition's dancing style was more in the same vein of Temptations, The Whispers, Blue Magic, The OJs, because that was mm-hmm. what Brooke Payne, uh, choreographer, and Ronnie DeVoe's uncle was reared on. Troop took elements of that, but also added popping and locking and everything that was popular out in California and they just had it be a massive success on the R&B side but they just never really had that pop success like New Edition I always felt Troop was unsung and very underrated in the eyes of uh, of many yeah that's fascinating is there um now that we're sort of talking about dancing and, and choreography is there for you like a boy band that you th- you kind of think of as like the premier the best dancers because this is also a question I get asked kind of frequently and it's always hard for me to answer because it seems like there are some that are obviously great of their time period mm. um but it's a little impossible because like now that I'm like sort of living in K-pop worlds because it's 2022 and, and that's sort of the popular boy groups of the moment. Mm. Some of these guys can, can really dance, but it's because they're pulling from from groups that you're mentioning. Right. Um, like I said, for, for me, my top two would be New Edition and Truth, because if you look at um, the AMAs that uh, the performance that New Edition and New Kids did and to see BTS being in reverence of both groups and doing the moves and pretty much paying respect to both groups that laid the groundwork and how, you know, you go to a new edition show and it's sell out all six members still moving, shaking, dancing, like in their early twenties and how, like I said earlier, individually and collectively, they set the standard for male pop and R&B groups. I mean, Bobby Brown's Don't Be Cruel was the best-selling album of 89, went diamond. Mm-hmm. BBD, solo massive success as a group, set the stage for male R&B groups and female R&B groups because if you look at TLC's debut mm-hmm. album and their whole look and aesthetic was pretty much BBD. Um, right. Ralph Trezvant <laughs> and Johnny Gill. I mean, the list goes on and on of how many groups and artists, new edition has touched and the same thing with new kids and how on the pop side you know battery boys and sync pretty much everything pop and r&b wise came from those mm-hmm. two groups right and absolutely nothing would be possible in the modern day pop without that because if you take a look at new kids and think about what maurice star did you know here's this black man taking five white kids from dorchester R&B flavor, the whole camp is all black. Dick Scott, 
the manager, black. Mm-hmm. Robo, bodyguard, black. Johnny Wright, black. Joe Jacket, black. Everything, it was all black, but never did at one point. But back then, we kind of looked at it as, ah, oh, they're white and they get all black. But like, no, you know, right. now we're in a time in society where we're not as deeply focused about race as we should be. And how mm-hmm. they, they were saying, look, regardless of what we are, this is what we love. We grew up around it. You know, if you don't like it, then you can go do something else. And Donnie definitely made that known because he was kind of like the spokesperson of the group and, right. was, and was pretty much hammering home the point like, hey, this is us at the end of the day. This is what we love to do. We're not ripping nobody off. We're always paying respect, homage. We're doing it justice. And if you don't like us, then you can kiss the backside. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, say it again for the people in the back. I even, I feel like, like I really do. I, th- I think New Kids on the Block has always been so good about that. And I wish more of these groups throughout the, his, uh, like the boy band, boy group story were, or at least like more vocal about that, um, which is interesting. Cause I, you know, sometimes I'll like, I'll look at these K-pop groups or I'll talk to them. And when they're talking about like their musical influences in like Western musical influences, they're very rarely saying like Backstreet Boys and Sync, like a lot of the sort of mainstream press would lead to believe. They're going back to like, they're mentioning Jackson 5. They're saying new edition because they know where it all began. And they know like, if you want to be a good dancer, you're looking at new edition. You're not going to, I mean, I again, I love the Backstreet Boys. You're not going to look at them as the best dancers, you know, in, in this sort of tradition. Um, right. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Right, and then another group who... They were huge in the early 90s. They de- they had a big pop hit with I Like the Way the Kissing Game, produced by Teddy Riley, uh, the late Bernard Bell, and um, Dave Way, High Five, rest in peace, Tony Thompson. You know, I felt High Five definitely were taking what New Edition did and was mm-hmm. going the pop, pop route of it. And the boys, uh, another group who I felt was unsung and underrated you know down my heart lucky charm uh hakeem mm-hmm. abdul samad from the boys underrated as a producer did remixes for kevin campbell shanice production work on the boys and they now are the band the sons of light and it just kind of feels like like you said every generation there's always going to be a boy group but when everything came out with luke perlman and what came out it to me ruined it can't not ruined but tainted what was really a special time in music with everything that ended up coming out about uh, Lou Pearlman. Yeah, it's it's really hard to deal with just stomach. And I've noticed that like, especially, I mean, I think it's true like in all of the entertainment industry, but especially with this sort of phenomenon that we're talking about, because a lot of these groups that end up like sort of doing well or like getting in these deals or whatever, they aren't from like entertainment households, right? Like their family isn't a, fa- or like a parent isn't like a famous actor or whatever. They're like kids from Kentucky or, you know, Roxbury in Boston or like Orlando, Florida, whatever it is. Um, and then they get into these exploitative contracts, which in many cases hinders their ability to have success. Like so many of the groups that you've educated me on. And I feel like you got to make me playlist. I'm really <laughs> excited to dig in. Uh, I've only skirted the surface here. Um, and, and so it sort of like limits their success. And then it also makes it really complicated to just kind of like, even in for, for some people, especially when you get a little bit older and you think about it, like enjoy listening to this music. Like I will always like a, a bop is a bop, but then it's complicated when I have to think of like, 
oh, but like what was happening behind the scenes? Like, was this, is this person who's singing this like really carefree song about having a crush in a, like a exploitative situation, God forbid, like an abusive situation. Um, and that just happens time and time again with, with this sort of stuff. And that's also a question that I would get asked a lot with the book is kind of like, well, how do people, like, how do you deal with knowing that when you're listening to pop music and, and or like this pop music and the answer is sort of that that's the case for all of pop music. You have to sort of make that choice of like, you love the record, you love these musicians, you want to support them. And they were in this horrible situation and those things have like exist all at all at once, I guess. I, I don't know. What, what's your take on it? Right. It kind of like you got to separate what happened from the art, kind of like, you know, mm. what's going on with R. Kelly. Like me personally, I can't listen to an R. Kelly record because of everything that's gone on behind the scenes right. and how yeah. kind of like knowing, you know, with Lou Pearlman, what was going on behind there. And then, of course, hearing about the dark stuff that was happening with Menudo. Like I said, it just, tainted a really special period in music when you know not everything was all squeaky clean like it was posed you know behind the scenes because you got to think about it a lot of these guys were in their early mid-teens maybe early 20s you know getting in these groups and they don't know no better sign these contracts mm -hmm. and especially when you're not of age and you, your the parents are pretty much signing over consent for these people to right. pretty much be the representative on your behalf and they're entrusting you to make the best decisions for them financially, physically, mm -hmm. you know, making sure that they're not exhausted. Because I remember there was a story when NSYNC was cutting their teeth in Europe and how they were steady on the go, boom, 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 boom. And I believe it was Justin's mom put her foot down to the label and was like, these boys need a break. If they don't get a break, yeah. we pulling the plug and we shutting this down. Mm -hmm. And you got to have somebody and, like that in the corner to pretty much stand up because if not, you know, they'll work you to death. Right, exactly. And that's also a situation in which, you know, NSYNC was very lucky to have Justin's mom and also Lance's mom went on tour with them in, in those early days too, because he was so young. Um, but to have somebody, a figure like that, that is advocating for you, because then you also have situations where like maybe um you know you're you're like 15 and or maybe even younger than that and your parents are like this is how we get a better life you're given this incredible opportunity and then you're both the kid and the meal ticket and then maybe they're not as keen to sort of like vouch for you it's so it's so really complicated and and sticky and and harrowing and and it happens all the time right that's why we call them a cautionary tale um, my reading of it is always, you know, that like, I love this music and it's so much of like what makes me happy and it's, it's, I've made friends from it. And now, you know, I get to talk to you and have this really lovely conversation about it. And, you know, I wouldn't trade that stuff for the world. What do I wish the conditions were better? Of course, it's so complicated. And I, but I'm with you there, like in a situation like our, our Kelly, I, I can't listen to that, but that's him cause, you know, being the, or doing, doing the abuses. It's like the, when it's the system, it's a little bit more complicated, I think. Right. And, um, you know, when you're thinking about the sacrifices you make as teens to go into this industry, and we mentioned the New Edition miniseries and just thinking about, you know, Ralph and, you know, the actor Algie Smith that portrayed Ralph and how Ralph pretty much, it was always group first, where right. you know, he could have had the solo deal initially. It was like, nah, this is for the group. Everything, you know, was for the group. 
And to think, you know, you have four or five plus other guys and how hard it is to kind of put your own ego aside, your own goals and wants aside, you know, for the sake of the group, you know, not everything's going to be rosy. I'm sure every group has had like, okay, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. But I got to hold my tongue because it is a group effort. Yeah, absolutely. And that is something too, that like, it's it whatever a group, like, like any of these groups, like when they like break up or decide to take a break or whatever. Now, I think a lot of it is just like after honestly and sync the sort of assumption is that like somebody wanted to leave because somebody got like got too big for the britches or whatever and and i think it's actually it's kind of an unfair reading because so much of it is so many of these guys who very much could have had that opportunity are making that sacrifice of sticking it out for the group and i think that's what's kind of usually some of my favorite groups seem to at least on the surface operate more like a democracy where they, where there is that sort of camaraderie and, and you can and you can tell and and uh and it's great yeah because seeing you know the crowd at the bashy boys concert and how fans still love them kind of makes you think hey justin justin you're not doing anything bro call up jc call up chris call up lance call up joey stop bsing give us what we want even if it's a 10 city tour, just give us something, man. I mean, imagine how much money you all would make if y'all were to say, we're going to do a tour. Y'all will break the internet. I'm serious. I agree. I, <laughs> I get goosebumps. I got goosebumps from you saying that. No joke. I, I like, I'm all for it. It's ridiculous that like when they do the mini reunion with Ariana Grande at Coachella, he's not there. I really, I think it's time. It also would just be good publicity for him because people have been giving him a hard time, you know, after all of the like free Britney and the Britney documentary stuff. When oh these yeah. Groups all, uh, um, sort of like some of the unfavorable, we'll say PR decisions around like the Crimea River sort of solo justified Justin mm. era. I mean, it would only benefit him to reunite with NSYNC right now. Let's send him yes. a letter. I'm, I'm yes. tell, someone us, tell Johnny Wright. Give us that, yeah. please. <laughs> please, please, please give us that. And uh, what I do want to mention, though, like I said, NSYNC still on hiatus. And you mentioned BTS is taking a break. Do you see BTS possibly going the NSYNC route and taking an indefinite hiatus? Here's the thing. It's almost impossible to know, but my answer, my like guess would be no. I think why this is happening now is uh, for, for people who don't know, in South Korea, there's a mandatory conscription, like military service for all men. And it used to be that you had to do two years of like civil service or military service by the time you were 28. And unless you there's some sort of like extraordinary circumstance, you're an Olympian, something like that. Um, and within the case of BTS, they, BTS they actually raised it to 30. Now their oldest member, Jin, turns 30 in December. So my think, and, and you know, it's like South Korea, it's a, it's kind of a conservative society where like you wouldn't be able to like, you know, just draft dodge for, for lack of a better term. Uh, it would be very disrespectful and looked down upon. Uh, so my thinking is they're taking a break so that they can, you know, fulfill this. Like some of them will take turns doing the solo thing. The other ones will like do their service and then they will come back afterwards. That's what Big Bang did, or that's mm. what they're doing now. So, so I think... And, but, you know, there's also some sort of controversy surrounding Big Bang as well. There always is. A con I'm only laughing because there's so many controversies in, in all of these stories that we're talking about. Um, but my thinking is 
that they will get back together um or like you know the, the break will end because um because of that reason and also they make billions for south korea a year it would be so ridiculous like it would be kind of just a loss for them <laughs> if uh mm. if they took a big break forever and they right. seem to really like each other so right. i don't know right right and i would be remiss if i didn't mention um bb mac because i was a huge fan of theirs because i remember back here getting played a lot on uh disney so i thought they were really huge and i don't know yeah. if um soul decision out of canada will be considered a boy band but i thought that they were really dope as well and we mentioned one direction and are you surprised mm -hmm. at the fact that harry styles has pretty much has gotten as big as he has solely because when i look at harry styles his style and his performance to me you could tell he really studied david bowie he definitely studied Bowie, definitely studied Stevie Nicks, big Fleetwood Mac guy. Yeah, I guess like I am, uh, you know what, it would, I, it would be ridiculous to say that I'm not surprised. I mean, I love the guy and I have for well over a decade now, um, but I think he's done a really excellent job at navigating his solo career. He obviously has such natural talent and, and charisma and, and a lot of it is talent and charisma. Um, but the fact that he's been able to become so successful and appeal to such a broad range of people outside of like, you know, One Direction fans or like rock music fans is really, really sort of impressive, um, you know, and, and people compare him to like a Justin or I mean, if he's lucky, like a Michael Jackson, you know, it's like a big, big, huge, like a member with a solo career that kind of eclipses the group. Um, but I don't know. He's just an interesting character. It's really, it's really been fun to sort of watch his career. Right. And they came together on the UK version of the X Factor, Simon Cowell, Judge, like we mentioned, uh, Five, because Five was Simon's attempt at missing out on the Spice Girls. And we saw mm -hmm. what numbers the Spice Girls did. And um, there is a boy group. A lot of people, not surprisingly, but this man went on to have solo success when he dropped the album Faith in 1987. First album that was number one on the R&B charts by a white artist talking about Mr. George Michael. Because when you go listen to the Make It Big album, that mm -hmm. clearly showcased that this man can't be contained. He can write and, and sing until the cows come home. And when Faith came out, that pretty much was like, letting it all hang out. And then when Freedom 90 came out, blowing up the jacket, the jukebox. He's like, I'm going to be more than just this pinup symbol. And do you think sometimes being in that type of group kind of restricts you when you want to try to venture out and say, hey, I've grown up and you got to resort to kind of doing outlandish measures to kind of get that teen idol stench off of you? Yeah, it's interesting because it's sort of like it, it appears that way with from like the the dis, the wisdom of distance, I guess, because in my mind, I'm like, I don't know. If, I mean, George Michael, like, was, was he always going to become that? Maybe. I, I think there's definitely you have to have that space. I always think of it as the like, not to be so like psychology about it but like the individuation problem where it's like when your identity is a group and you like have to figure out who you are you experiment a little bit we all do when we're like teens or in our early 20s and it's interesting to see when artists do that and when they do it artistically and like but no one can touch him faith is in, in, incredible like it's yeah. a, another another level right so where do you see the future of boy bands do you think we'll continue to see the rise of k-pop 
do you think we'll see dominance of American groups and with today's generation of kids listening to music genrelessly, will we see a board group where we're not going to be straight pop, we're not going to be straight R&B, we're not going to be straight rock, we're just going to be a collage of what we what we like? Yeah, it's interesting because I think like BTS like played with a lot of different genres, but like they, the biggest hits were the English language ones, which were pretty like retro-y synth pop, like very like shiny. Like, I mean, they're talking about drinking a glass of milk. It's very PG, like pop, pop, capital P pop music. Um, I think with the future boy bands, K-pop is not going to go anywhere, but because of the way that we listen to music now, where it is sort of like um, separated based on like what you actually like. And that doesn't mean by genre, it's just like there's so many different communities that kind of live in their own corners of the internet. I, I feel like it could be anything. I, I think it would be something that's uh, like the next big boy band will probably be something that plays with a lot of big genres. We'll probably have a couple big pop hits, but maybe they even have a country song. Like who knows? The, the world is, is, is changing and growing. My hope and my, my biggest dream would to be uh, would be to see another huge Latino boy band. Like, cause you know, it's been a very long time since Menudo. Um, everybody wants to be a reggaetonero uh, like today, you know, <laughs> like even like Rosalia and she's from Spain and she's not, she's not from Latin America, you know? So like, it would be fun to see like a big reggaeton boy band. Um, I don't know. I, I, I get really excited by the opportunity to play with genres, play with cultures and, and languages in particular, because, you know, for, for the history of pop music, everyone who isn't an English speaker is listen to English language music. And it's interesting to see now like young people have the experience of like some of their favorite songs of all time being performed in other languages and being open-minded about that, which I think is so cool and exciting. So mm. uh, a lot of opportunities there. Yeah. yeah. It would also be fun to see like a group, like it's been a while since we've had a big group of, of both like men and women, like boys and girls. I think of something like S club seven, which was sort of flashed in the pan in the oh, 2000s. Hold you your know? phone. I read somewhere on the news today that they're supposed to be getting back together. Now I remember S club seven, they had a show on Fox family back in the day. And this was um, when they were trying to break over in America. So why mm -hmm. do you think mixed groups have not succeeded here in America? It's, I have so many thoughts about this and none of them are based on anything other than opinion. So like not well-researched, just sort of um, thinking about it. I think a lot of it is people still kind of approach girl groups and boy bands as separate entities. Like if I had to flatten it in the way that they're marketed, girl groups typically have a message of like empower, like young girl empowerment. I mean, obviously girl power, with the biggest ones I'm talking about in, in America, like girl power, like the Spice Girls or like independent women, like um, Survivor, Destiny's Child. Child, right? And then you think of like boy bands, boy bands are usually there to act as like the non-threatening uh, boy that you can have a crush on who won't do you any wrong, who's there to support you, make you feel good, act as an alternative to like the ruffians you meet on the playground, et cetera, et cetera. Those two things don't totally match up when you sort of mix them. So I think a lot of it is people, I mean, I loved S Club 7, loved S Club 7, you know, and I've like, you know, I'll still, I'll bust it out at karaoke to see if people are on their toes. But I think a lot of like ideologically, like what they represent in the public, there hasn't been 
there hasn't been like a big message that people connect with. I don't know. I think it's about time though. I'm I'm ready. Yeah. More of that, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's about time for that. Another boy group you should definitely check out would be um another level. Um, they were mm-hmm. definitely dope. They had the record Alone No More. Uh Jay-Z was featured on it and they covered Silk's Freak Me. Uh Blue, they did a cover of Too Close by Next. They were at yes. the point of breaking in the US, but what ended up happening was they were doing press and it was around 9-11 and one of the members said something in the press that was insensitive because you know what was mm. going on at the time in America and that led to right. the US deal getting dropped and uh, that's what ended up happening with them but I think it'll be interesting to see where boy bands will be going for the next 10-20 years and maybe we'll get another together um, maybe we'll get another monkeys maybe we'll get another <laughs> new kids a new edition You'll never know. But um, real quickly, talk about any current projects you have coming out and also give any shout outs. Oh, sure. Uh, well, the big one is um, I'm currently in production of turning the book into a documentary on super fans, boy band super fans. Um, I'm working with XTR, which is the production company that did uh, Ascension, which was nominated for an Oscar last year for Best Documentary. Obviously, they lost to Quest Love and Summer of Soul, but they're an incredible, incredible documentary production company. Also working with um, Aggregate Films, which is owned by Jason Bateman. Um, their big thing is Ozark, but they're doing a lot of documentary stuff, so I'm working with them. It's directed by Gia Coppola, who is a Coppola, so it's very cool to get to work with her and like have, have a Hollywood family behind, uh, behind this project, and I'm really excited. Hopefully, it'll come out in the next couple of years. So if you are interested in the book, but specifically you're interested in the enthusiasm of people who love boy bands and, and boy groups and pop music in general and how it brings us together and it brings us joy and it soundtracks our lives, um, be on the lookout. Right now it's called uh, Super Hands, Super Fans, my gosh, Screaming, Crying, Throwing Up. It's a nod to the internet language. It's gonna be really fun. Um, as for, I should have shout outs. I didn't have shout outs prepared. I guess everybody I just mentioned, shout out my team, shout out uh, everybody who has purchased the book, uh, Hachette, Black Dog, and Leventhal, my publisher, uh, my agents, they're both named Dana. They know who they are. I don't know, shout out my mom <laughs> for allowing me to pursue my passion when she very much could have not supported me. Uh, shout out Puerto Rico, my, my homeland. Puerto yeah. Rico. <laughs> oh, I, I got to throw that Frankie Cutlass in there. Also, plug your social media. Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Maria Sherm. Uh, my website is also mariasherm.com. Um, hopefully, there will be some cool stuff on there. I'm very busy with the documentary, um, but it's been an incredible ride. And it's uh, it's just so fun to get to talk about pop music with people who love it and live it just like you, Jarrell. So thank you very much. No problem. You can catch this interview wherever you stream podcasts and on YouTube at youtube.com slash beyond the album cover. So ladies and gentlemen, Maria says if she was in a boy band, she would be considered the bad boy. Me, I would be considered the quiet one. So ladies and gentlemen, let's give a big thank you and round of applause for Maria Sherman for coming onto the podcast and breaking it down with me today. Maria, thank you. Thank you so much. There's no way you're the quiet one. You're way too charismatic for that, but that's, <laughs> I'll I let cons- you have I, I would like consider it. myself a mix of, I want to say, John Knight and Justin. Oh, okay. Uh, I like that. Yeah, thanks again, I like Maria. that.